Man, it was this week, the second week of June, a few years ago, the summer after my sophomore year, that I, the Lord really broke into my life. When I look back at the pivotal moments in my life that have opened me up to who God is, this is one of them. And it's a story I, I think back on every summer, especially around this time, that I, my, toward the end of my sophomore year, I allowed my ego to get to me. It led me, and I, I spiraled for a few months. I made numerous decisions that were outside of God's parameters. I was not craving righteousness. I knew in that time of my life, if I died, I wanted to go to heaven, but there wasn't much more about faith I was taking seriously in my life. And I, after experiencing a few months of some intentional sin, I went to church camp the second week of June after my sophomore year of high school. And, and God began speaking into my life and convicting me of some, some of the sin in my life. And I came back from camp questioning God's forgiveness, God's grace. Is, is God willing to forgive me for the things I've done? And, and I'll never forget it when my sister came home from college. Uh, and she, my sister and I always had a close relationship. So I was 16, she was 19. She came home, she came into my room one day and she starts asking me questions just about life. And then she starts asking me questions about, about my relationship with God and about my prayer life. And then she she starts asking me just yes, no questions about sin I had been struggling with. So I'm confessing things to Jenny, and then Jenny said, hey, so tonight, here's what we need to do. We need to sit down with mom and dad and confess our sins to mom and dad. And I remember just looking at her, and I was like, Jenny, 16-year-olds don't confess sins to mommy and daddies. 35-year-olds may tell mom and dad about sins they did at 16, but not 16s talking about stories they did when they were 16. So she talked me into it. We sat down with my mom and dad. Jenny went first. My mom was a complete basket case before it even got to me. And then I started sharing some of the things I was struggling with in my life. And I'll never forget it. My mother ran out of the room. And I thought she ran out of the room because she was so disappointed. She couldn't stand to be with us. But she came back in the room with her Bible open to the Psalms. And my mom just stood over Jenny and me. And she would just read a couple of verses from a Psalm. And then she would flip to another one. So Psalm 63, Psalm 103, Psalm 51, and they were psalms about forgiveness and about grace. And so my mother's just declaring and speaking truth and power over us. And it was a pivotal moment in my life when I, I think God used that moment to like peel off these layers on my eyes to see how great God was. And it was a season that forced me to think and to rethink who God was to me and who I was with God. That up until that point in my life, I think I wanted Jesus to be my Savior, and that was about it. If I died, I wanted to go to heaven. I didn't care about Jesus being a friend or a Lord or a master. I wasn't taking any other part of discipleship seriously in my life. And that was a season that made me rethink everything. It was a season to redefine me. So for three weeks, we're in the book of Isaiah, which is written over a 40 to 50 year period of time. So imagine somebody who journals a day or two and then may take some time off and then begins journaling some more and boom, you get Isaiah, all 66 chapters of it. And it goes up and down where there's seasons of righteousness and seasons of unrighteousness. And I've read all of Isaiah over the last few days. Isaiah 62 has this moment when people, I think were in the place I was after my sophomore year of high school of just rethinking like who God is and what does this mean and who am I with God and who is God with me and Isaiah 62 verse 4 and 5 God says this you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called mighty one who is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your builder marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so, so, so shall your God rejoice over you that God identifies and redefines who we are. 
I want to spend some time in Isaiah 6 today. I want to ask life group leaders, if you will, take some good notes, and you should be given questions just based on how I move through Isaiah 6. It can launch some really good, powerful conversations, whether you're in a life group setting or at lunches or dinners. So I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 6. It's also on the screen. I want to read just a few verses. Some of them you've already heard today, and then I want to unpack these a little more for you. And Isaiah 6, verse 1 through 8, says this. In the year that King Isaiah died... I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they're calling to one another, they're declaring to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips." And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And let me pray before I go any further. And if you will, just where you are, just open your hands in the presence of God. For God, we receive from you today. I've spent a lot of time in Isaiah 6. For many people, when they think of Isaiah, this is what they think of. Yet God, I'm asking today, if people do not remember any explanation that I give about Isaiah 6, that what you say in Isaiah 6 will perform in people's lives. If people don't remember any instruction that I give... May there be a word from you that does settle deep into hearts today. I'm asking God for those in here who find themselves today in bondage by sin, that you will reveal to them how Jesus has atoned for us and what it means to be released from it. I pray, God, for those who are being held hostage by guilt and shame of their past, that you will release them and liberate them today. I pray for those whose understanding of holiness has nothing to do with mission, that you will open them up to a greater vision of what it means to be your people. And God, I pray, just as Isaiah 55 says, that when words leave your mouth, they do not return to you void, but they perform the purpose for why they were sent. So God, in this place today, will you speak, will you declare, will you convict, will you pour out your love, will you touch us just like you touched Isaiah in Isaiah 6? I pray this in the power of your name. Amen. Isaiah 6.1 begins with this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, this is a note that you can easily skip over. Uzziah was king for 52 years. He reigned for 52 years. Imagine that. And he was a pretty good king. Like most kings, you can read about him in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 2 Kings, and you can put a thumbs up or a thumbs down on him. Most of the time, the Bible will tell you, here's who this king was, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah was a pretty good king. He reigned for 52 years. He began to reign when he was 16 years old. Like most of us in here, when we were 16, you did not need to be in charge of anything, much less a country. I mean, at the age of 16, I had, had, I had one job in my life by then. I was an umpire for T-ball, which meant that kids had no clue what I was doing, but parents hated me. That's just how T-ball goes. I could destroy anybody at Super Techno Bowl, and that was about it. He's king at the age of 16. He reigns 52 years. He was a good king. 
He's a powerful leader. He was a great warrior. He led armies. He, he defeated a lot of countries. He built cities. He strengthened cities. He would surround cities with fortified walls. He built strong towers that could provide for cities. It says he was a lover of the soil. So he put people in charge of the soil so the people could benefit from what the ground had to offer the people. I mean, a great leader, a great king. He was prosperous. The Lord spoke favor over him. And the Bible gives you details, and not only was he a great leader, but when it came to even how he led armies, he had 307,500 troops. And it doesn't just say that he, he like had that many troops, it's that he took care of them. Like he, he really cared for his soldiers. The Bible tells you he, he provided for them. He wanted to make sure they were properly equipped so they weren't just trained to fight. Like he, he made sure each one of them had helmets and breastplates and cleats and they had the equipment they need, that they had lightsabers and swords and uh, night vision, like anything it took, like he properly equipped them for war. And as much success as Isaiah had, there's this one verse in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, that sometimes I read the Bible and I read something, I'm like, oh man, it just makes me like sit back in my chair and I'm like, that's so sad. And what you read is this. But after Isaiah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. And I bet when most of you here think about your downfall in life or your downfalls in life, the same exact thing could be said about you. Now, some of you in here, may, maybe your entire life, you've never thought of yourself as powerful. But all of you have had power at some point in your life, even if it was just power for you to make your own decisions. And whenever we don't steward power in a way that honors who God is, it leads to downfall. It's power that leads to affairs and adultery. It's power that often leads to credit card debt. It's power that leads to an ego. It's power that leads us to act out in life in ways that doesn't honor who God created us to be. I was with a bunch of church leaders a few years ago. I was sitting in a room with church leaders, and a couple of them were caught up in, in affairs, emotional affairs, physical affairs. And there was one leader among us who said, guys, here's what you've got to do. And he was just giving advice. He said, you, and, and we spoke specifically into a couple of people who were struggling. But then he was, this one church leader began to speak over all of us. Of, hey, guys, here's sometimes what you need to do. Whenever you find yourself in a situation where maybe you, you find yourself lusting or, or some people you reconnect with an old fling over Facebook, what you need to do in your mind, just play this scenario out to the very end. And if you act upon this relationship, Play it out to the very end and then think about everyone who will be hurt along the way just for you to get there. And what will, what will you become? So I've applied this principle in other areas of my life. So in my life, when I have faced rejection, when I've faced betrayal, when there's been hurt in my life, and I know there may be emotions building up in me or a callus or, or maybe things have happened in life, like when our house got broken into that my heart can become hard, I have to pause and I have to think, okay, let me fast forward or just look in five, 10 years down the road. If I don't take this emotion seriously, what's it gonna make me into? Like if, if I... If I get to 10 years and I just try to suppress this, how's it going to make me a better person? Because right now I am a charming husband. Well, what kind of husband is that going to make me 10 years from now? It would have helped Isaiah a lot if when he realized his power, he played this out to the end. That if I do not steward this power correctly, how's it going to lead to a downfall? 
So let me just tell you what happened to Isaiah because his downfall isn't that he had a moment like David and Bathsheba where he cheats on his wife or that he commits murder. What Isaiah Isaiah does is he goes into the temple and he walks straight past the priests and he goes into a place where only priests were supposed to go and he begins offering incense to God, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It doesn't say that he's offering worship or incense to other gods. That he's offering incense to our God. But God had set up some rules. And God had set up some boundaries on how you're supposed to do some of this stuff. And in life, whenever God sets up rules and we decide to play by our own rules, it leads to some kind of downfall, right? And this happens in his case. It's like he goes into the temple. The priests are there and the priests are like... King Isaiah, how can we minister you today? And Isaiah's like, I got this one today, fellas. Like, you don't need to pray for me or with me. I got this one on my own. So he begins offering incense, which is something only a priest could do. Second Chronicles 26 tells you that 80 priests, and it doesn't just say 80 priests. It says 80 bold and courageous priests were begging him not to do it. Because this is, you're breaking God's rules. This isn't how God set this up. You can't do this, king. But he continued to do it. And the response was he was struck with leprosy. So for the rest of his life, King Isaiah had leprosy. Which most of you in this room won't suffer from leprosy in your life. It's the breaking down of bodily cells. You don't feel pain. It's an awful disease. And you're considered to be unclean. So almost every king in the Bible... They died before someone else began to reign, but not with King Uzziah. His son began to reign before King Uzziah died because King Uzziah was put in a different house where he had to spend the rest of his life. In fact, his, the end of his life, it ends like this. Second Chronicles 26, 21. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. And then it, his story ends like this. Uzziah rested with ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings. For people said he had leprosy. He wasn't even buried in the same place with his relatives and other kings because he died of leprosy. So he's even in death he's removed from the community and that's how the story goes king Isaiah didn't take seriously what was meant to be done god's way god had given temple instructions and in many ways king Isaiah represented who israel was at that time because a lot of times a leader whatever a leader does how a leader behaves and how a leader acts the people begin to act just like that and sometimes it's the way the people act the leader begins to reflect the people And the people at that time refused to tear down some of the high places and the worshiping other gods. And Isaiah Isaiah did nothing about it. And I think this is important for you to understand Isaiah 6. Because in the year King Isaiah died, Isaiah catches this vision. And it didn't take a newspaper because they didn't have them at the time for everyone else to know what had happened to King Uzziah toward the end of his life. How he had profaned the temple of God. He rebelled against God. He had a disobedient heart. That he had leprosy until the day he died. He's removed from the community. Everyone would have known this. Which would have left a lot of people with the question of, okay, the temple has been profaned. So what does this mean about God and God's holiness? And is God still going to fill the temple? What is going to be the impact on the entire community because of King Isaiah's sin. So now Isaiah catches this vision of God who is high and exalted, and a God who wants to fill the whole temple with his glory. 
It's God's way of revealing to Isaiah. It's like this gift God has given Isaiah to let him know, hey, King Uzziah did profane the temple, but nothing can strangle God's holiness. Nothing can defeat God's holiness. God's holiness is going to be what God's holiness is. And that God isn't through with the temple. So the image you get in verse 2 through 4, it doesn't do much to describe God other than God is on a throne. You get everything around that. You have what they're crying out and what they're declaring. And these seraphim, it's not that they're wanting your attention to be on them. They're trying to point you to the holiness of God. The phrase, Holy One of Israel, shows up 32 times in the Old Testament. 25 of those are in Isaiah. Isaiah wants you to understand that God is the creator. God is, God is a holy God. So here's sometimes how this works. That you can come into a worship space or you can come into a worship experience with a, with a rebellious heart or with a disobedient heart. And it's going to do nothing to the holiness of God. His holiness will continue. There's nothing you can do to shrink it, to weaken it. But you come into a worship experience or a worship space with a rebellious or a disobedient heart, it's not going to hurt God's holiness, but it will hurt yours. That you will be the one who suffers. And I'm not speaking this in some hellfire brimstone way of you go through a season of rebellion or distraction or, or disobedience and God's removing you from heaven. It's not that. But you come into a worship experience and you develop rhythms in your life where you're just going through the motions and you're not taking seriously the righteousness and the holiness of God. You're the one that's going to suffer. And I'm not talking about you being struck with leprosy. I'm talking about you developing rhythms in your life that are not aligning your heart with who God is or aligning your, your mind with who God is. And if so, then you you are strangling yourself from the joy, life, and peace that can only be found in God. So you have this moment where Isaiah catches this whole vision of heaven. Here's what is happening. And then in verse 5, Isaiah's like, I'm not going to survive this. Most of the time in the Bible, when people encounter the holiness of God, they are left on their faces thinking that they are dead. Like, I'm not going to live. So Isaiah's response is, woe is me. Now, what's really interesting about this is, I, I don't know if this were to happen to you, like some vision were to capture you, I don't know how, you're, how you would res respond to God or, or express yourself to God. For Isaiah, it's, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, it's like I, res I re represent a bunch of people who have unclean lips. And I think if this were me, it would probably be like, God, I, I, I'm a man of an unclean heart or an unclean mind. I don't know if I would go to... I'm a person of unclean lips, and I live among a bunch of people of unclean lips. I don't know what was on Isaiah's heart. I don't know if it was that the word of God was being strangled in that nation, or if he felt like he wasn't speaking words that were bringing life to the community around them, or people had forgotten how to speak redemptive words, or what. But what, what his response to God is, I'm a person of unclean lips. Now, I want you to see how God, what happens in this, and how God moves, and how God responds. That God respond specifically to the point of confessed need. Right? So, so there are times where God's going to initiate transformation in your life and you haven't asked for it. God's just going to begin moving in your heart or your mind to transform something. And there are other times where I think God is waiting on us to express a need or a confession or repentance and then God is going to respond to that. 
Isaiah says, I'm a person of unclean lips, and God responds specifically to the unclean lips. God's not going to bring a coal from the altar to touch his heart or to touch his mind or to touch his ear so he hears better. It's, he, God goes to a place of confessed need, which is why I often encourage people. Don't just offer up some broad prayer at the end of your day. God, forgive me for my many sins. If you want to get serious about transformation, you got to get serious and specific about the sin in your life. God, I need you to deal with my lust. God, I'm laying before you my pride. God, here is my selfishness. Here's my complacency. And trust that we serve a good God who responds specifically to our confessed need. God wants to clean Isaiah up before God sends him out. Uh, I remember my, my friend Max Licato, uh, years ago, he wrote in a book that he was one day at a park with his friends, and his, his children were there, and they were playing, and he was going to go get ice cream for his daughter. So he went, and he got ice cream, and he was going to give it to his daughters, and one of his daughters came running up, and she was small, and she had been playing in the dirt, and her face, and all around her mouth, was just covered with dirt and mud. And he said, oh, this ice cream's not going to taste good for you. Or to you. So he took her over to a water fountain to clean out her mouth and everything around her mouth so that when he gave her the ice cream, it would taste so much better. There wouldn't be something in in the way. It's what God wants to do with us, right? To clean us up, rid us us of sin, deal with the confessed need, the things that have to change so he can prepare us for something better. And I want you to see specifically at the end of verse 7 what it says here. This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And this is so big. Like, this has changed the way I pray for you throughout the week. Is I don't just pray for God to transform you and to call you out of the sin in your life. I spend a lot of my time praying for the guilt and shame that hovers over people. Because I think the enemy, I think Satan knows. There's nothing he can do to keep Jesus from forgiving sins. Like, there's nothing, like, Satan can't get into the waters of baptism and keep the power of baptism from flowing over you and washing over you and transforming you and saving you and releasing you of sin. So what the enemy wants to do is that once you are saved and forgiven, he wants to place over you this shame and this guilt that keeps you from living into your calling with God. And what God does is he's going to deal with the guilt just just as God deals with the sin. And then you get to the part of Isaiah that most people remember from Isaiah 6. And this is part where Isaiah is sent. And so after this moment of transformation and cleansing and holiness, the question is asked, hey, I've got a mission. Who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And this is what I think is so important because we're about to have a bunch of teenagers go to Panama, teenagers go on some other trips. Some of you are going on other mission trips, people listening right now on live stream and people who are listening to this podcast or people who are going on mission trips all over the place. And here's why I'm doing this series called Hands and Hearts, that you want to be called out to service, but we also need to know that God is calling us deeper into his heart. When you are atoned for sin... It is to prepare you for the mission. God doesn't just atone you for sin to set you free from sin, but then refuse to give you an assignment. God's preparing people for a life of mission. Holiness, or let me say it like this, if you want to engage in a mission trip or a mission-filled life, but you do not take holiness seriously, pretty soon the mission is going to become about you and not about God. How it makes you feel, 
how happy it makes you. Holiness is meant to proceed and go before any mission. Let me say it like this with all the love of my heart. We are not in need of more Christians to go take pictures with non-white kids in under-resourced countries. Let me get more specific, all right? We are not in need of more white Christians to go to countries and take pictures with non-white kids and under-resourced communities as much as we are in need of Christians who will take seriously a call to holiness before they take seriously a call to service and justice in the world. That if you want to go and be a part of how God is redeeming the world, you can't skip over a call to holiness and what it means to be made right with God. And to crave the kind of purity and cleansing that God wants to give all people. So then God sends Isaiah on mission. And this, is, this isn't really encouraging what God calls Isaiah to do. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then here's what you got. He said, go and tell his people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, I don't think this is God saying, this is what I'm going to do to the people. I think this is God's way of saying, hey, the sin the people have been caught in, it has led them to a point where they cannot see, they can't hear, and sometimes it takes a prophetic word that will upset people that can hopefully then soon send them on the right path. And Isaiah responds in verse 11, and he says, for how long? He doesn't say how. His question is, how long do I preach this message? And God's response is, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. But then I want you to notice this last, this last line in here. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So the message God gives Isaiah to go preach isn't just that things will be destroyed. It ends with a little bit of hope. That God can take a seed and God can take a stump... And God can create a world out of it. He can create new creation. A brand new thing. And that's how Isaiah 6 ends. I remember a few years ago, I was having a guy's night out. And, and I can't remember all the silly, goofy, crazy things we did. But we were hanging out for a few hours, just having a good time. And at some point in that night, God began to steer this conversation to mission and service. So we started talking about the ways we felt God was using us or wanted to use us. And there was one guy that we were hanging out with. His name was Tony. And Tony just said, man, guys, I, he hadn't said anything since this conversation shifted to, to deeper things about God. And he said, guys, I just, I feel like there's something holding me back. And when he said that, he began to share some of the things going on in his life. Some of the brokenness some sin, the consequences he was facing because some of the sin, things he had done with some girls that should only be done within parameters of marriage. And he began to share this. So we're in the context of talking about service and ministry and mission, and he's reflecting on, he feels like something is holding him back. We kept talking with Tony, and that night about 1 or 1.30, we ended up going up to a church and baptizing Tony in the name of Jesus. And I've baptized, I don't know, I mean, hundreds of people in my, in my ministry. 
This is one I'll never forget because when he came out, out of the water, what he talked about was how he felt so clean and so pure as if God made him right. And he started talking about how now he felt like God was preparing him for a mission. And this is what God does. So if you're here today and you're feeling unclean and you haven't had your sins forgiven, you haven't entered into a moment where you have confessed your sin before God and been baptized into, into Christ, this could be a beautiful moment for you to surrender your life to someone who knows what to do with your life. Someone who has already done something for you. Someone who is going to reveal to you how far you are away from God so that he can come and shrink that distance between you and God. And if there's someone here who is in, is in that place where the guilt is just holding you down and holding you hostage, will you give me something to pray for this week over you? You can write it on a card, shoot me an email, and we're about to have elders and prayer leaders around this room to pray for you. And if you're in a place where you're not taking holiness seriously, may it be a... Uh, may this be a day where it becomes something that you crave. And if you're in a place where you feel like you're taking holiness and righteousness seriously, but not the mission of God seriously, may God open your eyes today, just like God did with Isaiah, to see that God is making you holy in preparation for a life of mission for God. So I don't know what God wants to do with Isaiah 6 in your life today. I'm just asking, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. May our elders and prayer leaders, will you go and surround this place to receive people? And we're going to stand and we're going to sing this song together as a church. Let's stand.